0: Yeah. Appreciate Kyle and Sarah sharing. And uh, Stella, thanks for inviting. And uh, thanks for sharing the gospel. And uh, Cody, thanks for walking. Where's the bearded one? He's somewhere around. And uh, thanks for walking with Kyle. Those are awesome kinds of stories, and that's what the text is about today. It's a story like that. And so I want you to open your Bible with me to Acts chapter 8. It's on page 916, if you're using the Bible there in the pew. Page 916, Acts chapter 8. We'll start in in verse 4, and if we've not met, my name is Brian. I'm one of the the pastors here. Uh, I've got guys waving at me because they're antsy. Anybody know why anybody might be antsy in here? We didn't take an offering, right? Are you in the mood to take an offering? Yes. Because I'm in the mood to preach. I'm like, you missed it, boys. <laughs> but there is a light bill to contend with and things like this, right? So, guys, go ahead and uh, come on and, uh, and do that. And I'm going to keep going. Can you give and listen simultaneously? Yes. All right, all right. That's what we're going to do then. We're going to do. I, don't you love church live? Yeah, that's, 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 what it, that's what it is, all right? So we're studying through the book of Acts together as a church family. Thank you, man, for reminding us and taking the, taking the offering this morning. We're studying through the book of Acts together, and this text is about four people. Four people. Everybody say four people. Four people, all right? The first person is Philip. Philip is an everyday disciple of Jesus. The second person, or really people that we meet, are the Samaritans, They become joyful receivers of the gospel. The next person that we meet is a guy named Simon. Simon is a would-be disciple of Jesus. That's what we'll call him. And then at the end of the text, we meet Peter and John. Peter and John are apostles of Jesus, and they're mission extenders, all right? So that's how we're going to let this text kind of fall out before us this morning, all right? It's about people's lives changing through Christ. And so the guys on the the, kind of the bookends of the story, Philip at the beginning and Peter and John at the end, they're they're going out with the gospel, and the two in the center are ones who are hearing the gospel and, and taking it in. And the big idea that I want you to walk away with this morning is this, that God uses everyday believers sharing the word of Christ and showing the love of Christ to bring great joy to people for the glory of Christ. God uses everyday believers showing the love of Christ, sharing the word of Christ to bring great joy to people for the glory of Christ. So let's kind of refresh for a moment, right? We were in chapter six and seven last week, and last week we saw really a terrible thing. We saw the first Christian martyr. His name was Stephen. Stephen was not an apostle of Jesus. He was an everyday disciple of Jesus. And his life was taken because he trusted in Christ, because he declared his faith in Christ. Alongside of Stephen, or there in that scene, was a young Jewish zealous Pharisee named Saul. Saul approved of Stephen's death. And then Saul took off. He began to ravage the church. That's the word. It's a word that really describes a vicious kind of persecution. Everything ramped up. At this point, the apostles had been arrested. They'd been threatened. They'd been imprisoned. They'd been beaten. But now, one of the believers, they've been martyred. And now it's getting worse. Saul is dragging men and women out of their homes and putting them in prison. And some of the believers, in fact, it says all of the believers, are scattering out of the city of Jerusalem and into the regions of Judea and Samaria. That's what's happening in verses 1 through 4. That's what we see, verses 1 through 3. And now look at verse 4 in chapter 8. It says, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip, now we're going to zoom in, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And so the spotlight moves from Stephen to Philip, and Philip is another, like Stephen, another everyday disciple of Jesus. He was one of those seven set apart in chapter 6 to care for the needs of those widows in the life of the church. And now he's been scattered out of the city because of this persecution along with all these other believers. And the word scattered is an interesting word. It's the word that we get the word diaspora from. And it's actually kind of a, it's a word that pictures something agricultural for us like sowing seeds, scattering seed. My wife's grandfathers, both of them, Arthur Inyard and Harold Bartholomew, they were farmers in north central Missouri. I remember pulling up to their homes and seeing when they had corn in the fields, the immaculate, clear lines of rows of corn that they had planted. No farmer worth his salt just randomly scatters seed in a field. He plants intentionally, plants carefully. It matters how they do that. And this passage is about God, the master sower, working through this persecution to sow everyday believers like gospel seed into the lives of all of these Samaritans. And that means something for you and me. That means your comings and going in life, they may not be planned, they may not be expected, they may not even be desired or convenient. But God places us where he wants to. He means to get the gospel out. And where God sends us, he sends us with the gospel. So look at what happens here with Philip because Philip has been sent now by God into Samaria. Verse six, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who heard them and many were paralyzed and lame. They were healed. And now look at verse 12. But when they believed Philip, As he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. When you think about that earlier statement about all of those people who were being healed and those signs and wonders God was doing through Philip, do you ever think, well, I'm sure that if I could do some signs and wonders, people would probably listen to me when I share the gospel. And that might be true, right? And God can certainly do signs and wonders and people can be healed and miracles can happen and we ought to pray for God to move mightily in people's lives. We should never be bashful about that. We should trust him. But healing is entirely God's business. We don't have control over that. On the other hand, while God may not work for you and me to do signs and wonders, your life, your character, your conduct can show the love of Christ to people who need him. Your character and your conduct can either put the gospel on display or obscure it completely. Think about just some practical pointed kinds of examples. For instance, is the person in the conversation who might be absent from that conversation, are they safe around you or are you a gossip like others? Do you find yourself very self-absorbed? Or do you have time for others? Are you aware that other people have needs? or Are you self-centered? Are you you generous with your time and with your finances? Or are you stingy? Do you exhibit humility or pride? Your life and your character, the manner of your life, can either put the gospel on display or it can obscure it. God did many amazing things through Philip right here. We, We see that in the text. But the most important thing for us to see is this and to hear is this, that Philip went to Samaria announcing the gospel, proclaiming the Christ, preaching the word. That was true not just of Philip, but of all of those who had been scattered there. And every time you see one of those little phrases, he went and proclaimed to them the Christ. All of those who were scattered were preaching the word. And in verse 12, it says, when they heard Philip as he preached the good news. Those are different words, but they carry the same meaning, the same real sense. The gospel is an announcement. It has to be verbalized. And it's an announcement that God has worked in the world to send his son into the world, to save sinners, to reconcile us back to himself. That's the announcement that needs to be made. And so the gospel begins with God, that God is holy and just, but he's also the gracious creator of everything in the world, including you and me. And God desires for us to have a relationship with him. He longs for us to know his love and be in his light and enjoy his glory and his splendor forever. But the gospel moves on to describe man's condition, and human beings are sinful. We, we've split from God. We've separated ourselves from God. We've chosen to go our own way, if you will. We've cut ourselves off from God by our sin. In other words, we don't buy God's good design. We want to live life on our own terms. We want to do it our way. And the Bible refers to that as sin. And the Bible tells us that all of the brokenness and the difficulties and the futilities that we experience in life are really directly related to our problem with sin. And ultimately, the Bible tells us that sin brings a penalty. And that penalty is death and eternal separation from God. The good news is that God did not choose to leave us in our condition, separated from him and hopeless and helpless without him. He chose to intervene on our behalf to come and show us his love. And he did that by sending his son, Jesus, into the world. And Jesus came and he put on human flesh and he lived the design of God perfectly. He never sinned even though he was tempted to. And Jesus lived out his life before God, trusting the Father all of the way. And because he lived that way, he was a sacrifice worthy to be accepted by God. He was perfect without sin. And so Jesus chose to lay his life down for you and for me. He died on the cross in our place for our sins. And then he was buried in a tomb, and three days later, he rose from the dead. And the Bible tells us he defeated sin and death and the evil one in his resurrection. And now, because of Jesus, our sins can be forgiven. The slate can be wiped clean, and we get a new heart because we receive his righteousness. And so Jesus took our sin, but we get his righteousness. And so God calls us to respond to this good news, to repent of our sins, to admit that we have sinned, that we've broken God's law, that we've cut ourselves off from him by the way that we've lived our lives and our attitudes, our words, our thoughts, our deeds, and to trust alone in Jesus and what he can do. To no longer rely on ourselves to somehow be good enough before God that he would accept us, but to realize that could never happen. We can never reach that threshold. God had to intervene on our behalf and he sent Jesus. And if we would trust in what Christ has done for us in his completed work on the cross, then you can be born again into the eternal family of God. That's the gospel. And that's what we're here to share. You know, uh, A couple of weeks ago, we started talking about this as we moved through the book of Acts, and I want to talk about it a bit more. As a church, we were planted here 32 years ago. 32 years ago, a group of believers were captured by God with a vision to see the Abatuki Foothills saturated with the gospel and to see believers discipled and walk with Jesus. And so Foothills Baptist Church was planted and there's a lot of neat history, and we're going to put some of that up on our website in days to come. You're going to see it in our email. You're going to be able to walk through kind of a, a timeline and see what God has done over time. But it's amazing to me that God, the master sower, planted this church carefully and intentionally, putting us here in this community. There are 81,000 people that live here in the Awatuki foothills. It's no accident that you and I live here either. It's no accident that this church has been planted here by God. We're here for a mission. Uh, f- a few weeks ago in Acts chapter 5, right, we, we read how the, how the authorities questioned the apostles, and they said, you guys have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And we asked, what would it take for us to fill the Awatuki foothills with the gospel? A couple of weeks ago I asked you, who's your one? Who's that person that you're praying for? to come to know Jesus. And this morning, I want you to imagine something with me. Imagine what it would be like if God would mobilize us as a people to have a thousand gospel conversations over the course of this year, filling the Ahwatukee foothills with the gospel. That's what that big map is for out there. We want to kind of chart it. We want to kind of see ourselves doing that very thing, having those gospel conversations. Now, some of you may be thinking, and we, we wrestled with this with the elder team because we said a 1,000, that doesn't, that seems kind of lame. Not nearly enough. And I get that. For some of you, if you're faithfully, intentionally trying to share the gospel with people, that may seem like too few but there are some of you, and you know who you are, that you've not yet shared the gospel. You're maybe concerned. You're not quite sure where to start. You need some equipping, and we, we get it, and we want to provide that for you. We want to set a mark and say, what would it look like for us as a church to have a 1,000 gospel conversations over the course of a year? What kind of joy would it bring to people all around us if they heard the gospel of Christ? And so uh, you're wondering, what, what is he doing with a glass jar and ping pong balls? This is how we're going we're gonna to try to chart it for ourselves. We, we want you, if you have a gospel conversation with someone, to come and grab one of these. It'll be out there in the, by the map, and we're going to ask you to write the first name of that person that you've shared with and put it into the map. You'll, you'll see what we're talking about. You just drop it in there. And then there are going to be some of these cards. It's got a rubber band on it, but there will be some of these cards here with an email address. And we want you to share your story of how you were able to share the good news with someone. And share it with all the highs and the lows. I mean, just be authentic. And we want to be encouraged by that. Now, we're not going to publish your email anywhere or say anything about it publicly without your permission, of course. But we may ask your permission to do that. Because we want to encourage one another. And hopefully, we'll be having those conversations between ourselves as well as the year goes forward. And as we begin to look and ask God to help us share the gospel a thousand times over the next year as a church When you believe that God is the master sower and that we are not here by accident, but that he has carefully placed us as a church and you and me in this community to share the word of Christ with people, what would happen if a thousand gospel conversations flowed out of the life of this church into this community? The joy that would happen in this community. How many other Sarahs and Kyles are there living around us who are our neighbors and our friends and our co-workers or people that we haven't even met yet. They need the joy of Christ. And we're the ones who can deliver that to them. We can share it with them. I want to see us do it over the next year. And you can start. You can start even today. You think, well, I'm I'm not sure how to share the gospel. I'm not confident with that. Okay. But you can invite someone just like Stella did. In fact, we'll give you a card and make it easy. You can use one of those snowy night inviter cards. That's a great event. Invite people to come with you to that. Or just invite them to come to church. We've got some just plain business cards that you can use to invite people to come along with you on a Sunday morning. Whatever it is, make an invitation even and trust God to give you an opportunity to share the story of Jesus with others. Well, that's Philip, an everyday disciple of Jesus. We can be just like Philip in that way. But look at verse 8, it says there was much joy in that city. I keep talking about that. When the Samaritans hear the gospel and receive it, joy comes with the gospel. It's changed their hearts and so the Samaritans are joyful receivers. And part of the joy I think that happens in the Samaritans is that a unity begins to happen here that they haven't known for a thousand years. A thousand years before Philip steps into Samaria... The Jews were one nation, but they had a civil war of sorts. They split, they divided, and they split into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom took Samaria as its capital. And over time, the Samaritan kingdom, that that northern kingdom of Jews, they were overrun by Gentiles. And over time, those Jews there started to intermarry with those Gentiles who had conquered them, something that was strictly forbidden by God. The Jews in the southern kingdom despised that. They couldn't stand it. I knew our kids would be in here this morning, so I thought I'd drop this in here. If you've read Harry Potter or seen the movies, the southern kingdom would have looked at the Samaritans as if they were muggles. They were mixed blood people. They were impure as far as the southern kingdom of Jews were concerned, and they didn't want anything to do with the Samaritans. In fact, it was so bad that they'd take the long way around Samaria if they needed to go north. They'd add an entire day to their travel just so they didn't have to be around them. And the Samaritans, you know, they, they antagonized the southern kingdom as well. They, they built their own temple and said, this is the real temple, not yours in Jerusalem. And they said, we no longer trust that all of these books that you say are God's word are actually God's word. And so they thinned out the Old Testament Bible and what they chose to believe and follow there was a lot of issues there and in this history you see Jesus now think about this Jesus told the parable of the good Samaritan (laughs) that was impossible to comprehend by the Jews from the southern kingdom that there would be a good Samaritan who would reach out the way that that man did But Jesus also went into Samaria. Do you remember that short-term mission trip that he took his disciples on in John chapter 4? And he shared living water with that woman by the well. That was the first time the gospel really penetrated that people. And Jesus stayed on there for two more days sharing the gospel and helping them know what it means to really follow him. It was really an amazing thing. And so these Samaritans now are hearing the gospel through this Jewish everyday believer, this everyday disciple of Christ, Philip. They hear it, they believe it. There's joy in their life, but this is a delicate situation. There's potential for conflict here. So what happens? Well, the the apostles, the Jewish apostles, come down from Jerusalem and go to Samaria to check on these new believers and to affirm them. I want you to look at verses 14 through 17. We're gonna see something interesting here. When the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them to Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the holy spirit for he'd not yet fallen on any of them but they had only been baptized in the name of Jesus then they lay their hands on them and they received the holy spirit now this is an out of the ordinary thing this is a one off if you will in Acts chapter two, Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, and what's the pattern that he lays out? He says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the pattern for salvation. Repent, believe, forgiveness, and the Spirit comes. Why didn't the Spirit come when the Samaritans first believed? I believe it was because God wanted to, his people The Jews and those apostles in particular to come and affirm the fact that these are now believers in Christ, that these people who used to be outcasts are now included, that they're part of the church. They belong in this family. And so the Jewish apostles go up to Samaria Not to approve and check it off, but to affirm new brothers and sisters in Christ, to lay their hands on them, and in that physical act, in that moment, God sends the Spirit for all of them to see all at once. What an amazing scene that must have been, just affirming and confirming. These who used to be outcasts, who used to be unwelcomed, are now included. They're one with us. And they celebrate it, I'm sure. And here's the important thing for you and me in in that text. The gospel identifies one problem that is common to every human being walking the planet. doesn't matter where you've come from, what your language is, what color your skin is, whether you come from a lot of means or no means at all. The common problem we all have is sin. And there isn't but one savior for that sin for all of humanity. And that's Jesus. And so the moment that you become a follower of Jesus Christ, the moment you're in Christ, You receive a new identity. You're a disciple of Jesus. You belong to him. You're a son or daughter of the king. Now, that's important to remember because God is sending his gospel to the ends of the earth. He plans for some people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation to be part of the church. He's going to include them. So while your faith in Christ doesn't negate whatever cultural background, ethnic background you might have, doesn't negate it, it certainly outweighs it. The most important thing about you and me in this room this morning and for you and me anytime outside of this room if we're followers of Jesus is the fact that we are followers of Jesus. We have been marked by the Son of God. We have been adopted into the family of God. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all and by his Spirit he has made us his sons and daughters. We belong together. It doesn't matter what your language is, what color your skin is, where you came from. We belong together together. That's the deepest, most important thing about all of us. And so the application for you and me is this. Are there people that that you have a difficult time considering as a brother or sister in Christ of welcoming into the church because of where they're from or who they happen to be? You need to look hard at the cross and see that the blood of Christ ended the hostilities between God and man. And it's the blood of Christ that brings us into right relationship with one another as well. And so here are these Samaritans, joyful receivers of the gospel, and Philip, an everyday disciple, sharing the word of Christ. And then you have this guy, Simon. And we're gonna see his story fall out here, beginning in verses nine through 13. I'm calling Simon a, a would-be disciple. His response to the gospel is, is, seems to be the same, and yet it's different. We'll, we'll look at it. Look at verse nine. So all of this is happening. Philip is preaching. The Samaritans are believing Verse nine, but there was a man named Simon. And so you have the Samaritans as a people and now there's a focus on this one of one man, Simon. And Simon had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. Isn't, isn't that good for him? And they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying this man is the power of God that is called great. So they're all agreeing with him, actually. And they paid attention to him because for a long time, he had amazed them with his magic. Shift, but when they believed Philip, preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were, they were baptized, both men and women. They believed, and then they were baptized, and even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed. He, he was amazed. Simon, uh, it's interesting. I mean, he's a self-proclaimed great guy. What do you say? He looked in the mirror and he said, man, you're a great guy, son. I don't know. He just thought he was a great guy and he, he loved to be the center of the attention for the Samaritan people and they gave him their attention. He had some kind of power. We don't really know. The text doesn't tell us a lot about what kind of power this man seemed to have, but he had something that captured people's attention and they were paying attention, but now... Now, there's a shift, and people are starting to pay attention to what God is doing through Philip. And at the same time, in the midst of this, in the midst of kind of losing his audience, Simon believes. And Philip baptizes him. I read one commentator said, there's nothing in the text here to think that Philip was premature in baptizing Simon. But something seems to shift. There are some questions about this guy's conversion to Christ. Look at verse 18. We pick up his story. This is after the apostles have come. They've laid their hands on the Samaritans. The Spirit has come. Simon sees all of this. And look at this. When Simon saw that the Holy Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, Give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, and this is where, if you're from the South, you interject, oh, bless his heart. <laughs> because when Peter speaks in a situation like this, it's gonna be, well, it's gonna be forthright, right? And what does Peter say to him? May your silver perish with you. May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. This is about the grace of God. What are you talking about? Buying this power. This is God's grace at work. And then look at what he says, he says, You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Peter is either talking about Simon's conversion, his salvation, meaning he doesn't have it, or he really doesn't know what he's talking about, and it's not about him imparting the Holy Spirit to people. You don't have a part or lot in this matter. And then he just presses in. He says, repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours. Pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. I don't know if Simon was jealous of all of the attention suddenly being shifted away from him and that's creating this problem of sin in his life. But Peter speaks to him that way, and Simon answers, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. In verse 13, Simon believes and he follows in baptism and he spends some time with Philip and now this is Peter pointing his finger at Simon's chest and saying, brother, you're out of bounds. Something's terribly wrong. Has Simon truly been born again? Or does he just want power like the apostles seem to have, like Philip seems to have, so that he can be great again as he once was? Some people think because of what Peter had to say here and some of the rest of this text that Simon isn't really truly a believer. He's not really a disciple of Jesus. But then there are others who say, wait just a minute, this guy is brand new, he's a new believer, and he's struggling, obviously, with the motives of his heart. He's fresh, And and so, don't be surprised if he says crazy, unbiblical things. If he doesn't speak with great biblical accuracy. For all we know, Simon's hair is still wet from baptism. It hasn't been long since he came to faith. We should expect that kind of thing. Well, there is uncertainty in the text about Simon's conversion. Here's a Samaritan celebrity. What are we to, to take of him? What are we to make of him? I have to be honest with you and I, I, and I spent a lot of time worrying about even making this, uh, this assessment or this illusion here but I couldn't help but think about Kanye West as I'm reading this story. How many of you, I want to see a show of hands right up in this place. How many of you know who Kanye West is? Raise your hand real high, look around. Look at all these Kanye lovers. <clears throat> now I want you to raise your hand again. How many of you knew who Kanye West was before last week? Yes. Wow! look at that I knew that there was a Kanye West before last week man I am (laughs) old and out of touch I don't know what it is it's both I guess I don't know but I I looked him up on Wikipedia Kanye West because I wanted to get it right because I obviously jacked up the Lakers illustration last week (laughs) Kanye is a singer and a songwriter. This is all according to Wikipedia, it must be true. He's a, he's a record producer, right? Which I think seems, as I dug a little bit more, it seems to be the thing that he's really known for, being a record producer. He's a fashion designer. He also, like Simon, has thought a lot of himself for a lot of years, right? He said this, listen to what he said. He, said, he referred to himself as the greatest human artist of all time. He's not the first. Simon beat him to that. (laughs) Muhammad Ali followed, you know, beat him to that, right? Yeah, sure he did. But, But Kanye, right? You know this, right? Kanye just released an album, Jesus is King. Jesus is King. I can get on board with that. Yes, Jesus is King. All right, I haven't listened to the album. I don't know that I will, but he's released this album. And since January, he's been doing these pop-up worship services all over the country. He has been declaring openly that he's trusting Christ, that he's believing on Jesus, that he's a son now, that he's been saved, that he's been forgiven. He's declaring these things. Last week on Jimmy Kimmel, Jimmy asked him this question, are you a Christian artist now? And he said, I'm just a Christian everything. Yeah, I would say that, yeah. I don't know where, where to fall necessarily on Kanye's conversion exactly, right? I'm not. I had to look him up on Wikipedia. I'm sure that would be a shock to him. And what do we do with Simon? What does this text say? How does it inform us when a celebrity, somebody who has a platform, comes to faith in Jesus Because a celebrity, a person who has a platform is widely known, it's different for them than it is for me or for John DeCatch. Because me and John DeCatch, we kind of fly under the radar, right? We're everyday guys living in Ahwatukee. Some of you, if you come to faith in Jesus, it's not gonna rock the world. Jimmy Kimmel isn't gonna call you for an interview. So when someone who's fresh to the faith gets put on a pedestal like that, and they have to make an account For what they say they believe, what happens when they say something that might be a little out of line, unbiblical, not scriptural? Uh, This is what I think the text is, is telling us. I think it's intentionally vague. Good arguments can be made on both sides. I'll probably have 10 preachers come up to me and say, brother, it was this or it was that, and I hear you. But I'm going to fall directly in the middle because I think I want to live in this tension right here and say this to us that not everyone who believes and is baptized is a real disciple. That doesn't mean that we automatically think in in a suspect terms of the Andersons for instance who shared their testimony and was baptized or anyone else. We give as the body of Christ the spiritual benefit of the doubt. We encourage someone who is declaring their faith in Christ and following in baptism, we encourage them. We walk with them. We pray for them that God would use them. And and beloved, I think it's appropriate that for someone like a Kanye West or some other people who have a wide platform, who have lots of opportunities to open their mouth and speak, maybe before they've been discipled very much, to pray for them that God would protect them and fill them with his spirit and develop them as real disciples of Jesus. I pray that that's true for Kanye. I pray that he knows Jesus, and his life is changing. Imagine the effect that 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 could have. It would be awesome, right? We want to pray for him, and, and I think that's the right way to approach it, whether it's Simon or Kanye. So you have these responses to the gospel in this text. Between the Samaritans and Simon, Philip, that everyday disciple, sharing the gospel, and now you have these guys here at the end of the text, Peter and John. Verse 25, when they had testified and spoken the word of God, the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Can you imagine the joy that captured those guys? They had just seen um, a spiritual miracle happen. People who had been outcast and cut off, people for whom they had had perhaps hostile feelings toward now have been included and they've welcomed them and they've seen the spirit come. I can imagine that the words of Jesus in Acts 1-8 were ringing in their ears. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and they must have been talking really fast and furious. Can you believe what God has done? He has swept into the lives of the Samaritans. The spirit came and now they're on their way back and they are stopping at every Samaritan circle K looking for somebody to share Jesus with. I mean, they are pumped and they are stoked and they want to do that. Beloved, Jesus is king. And as the king, he has sown us into this community. And we have the joy of being his people and sharing the good news of Christ with people anywhere, anytime, anyplace and seeing the joy of Christ come into their lives as we're faithful to do that, to see them experience the unending, inexhaustible joy of Jesus coming to live in the center of their hearts. Until he returns and sets up his kingdom, we have the privilege of sharing that good news. Imagine a thousand gospel conversations over the next year coming out of the life of church. Would it be 2,000 or more? Let's pray that God will use us that way. Now let's, let's do that as we move into taking the Lord's Supper together, all right? So guys, you can get up and, and get yourselves ready. And I wanna pray for us in just a, for just a few moments here. Lord Jesus, we believe your word and we trust in it. We believe that you sowed the church here into this community many years ago, that you gave a group of believers a vision for the gospel to saturate this neighborhood and this community. And Father, we confess that we are here. We see ourselves, those of us who are believers here, we see ourselves like gospel seed that you have scattered into this community. And Lord Jesus, we want to honor you. So we ask that you would help us to do that through faithful obedience to this mission, through faithful obedience to our identity as everyday disciples of yours. Lord Jesus, I pray that it would sink deep into our hearts, that our lives are sent. We're we're not living where we're at. We haven't been relocated here, perhaps, by happenstance, by corporate moves. We believe you are sovereign, you are king, and you've planted us here. And where you send us, you send us with the gospel. And so we bow our hearts before you today. And we come to take this bread and this cup, symbols of your body and your blood, Lord Jesus, that were broken and given and laid down for us, for our sins. And I pray for every heart in the room this morning, every person who knows Christ, that you would speak to them today and that you would work in their hearts. And Father, I pray for anyone who's in the room that hasn't yet come to profess faith in Jesus, hasn't yet called on him, hasn't yet turned from their sins and put their trust in him, that they would do that today, even before they leave the building. Beloved, I just want to speak with you for just a moment, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. And for those of you who are are believers, that's what this table is for, the Lord's Supper, the bread and the cup. It's for those of you who have professed faith in Christ. You eat the bread and you drink the cup as a testimony of your own faith in Jesus that you are trusting in him fully for your salvation. And so if there are children in the room or others in the room who've not yet done that, you just allow the elements to pass and remember that that's what it is. And one day when you come to faith in Christ, you'll be welcomed to that table. You'll you'll be asked to take it, the bread and the cup and receive it as a testimony of your faith in Jesus. It'll be so meaningful to you then. But for those of you who are believers, I wanna give you a few things to think about as you pray. And I'm gonna ask the guys to go ahead and and serve those elements now. And as they're serving them, I want you to just think through these as you pray, and then I'll direct us to to take the the bread and the cup. I want you to begin by just giving thanks. Giving thanks to God the Father for the joy of your salvation in Jesus. Would you just celebrate the goodness of his grace in your life? The joy of your salvation at the center of your heart, an unending, inexhaustible joy of knowing Christ. Give him thanks for that. And before we take the bread and the cup, that that you would ask him to convict you of your identity as an everyday disciple on mission among your friends and your neighbors and your coworkers. God, convict me of my identity as an ambassador for Christ wherever I go, as a minister of reconciliation. God, drive that conviction of my new identity in Jesus deep into my heart so that I see myself that way and I see people, people you love, and I love them. And out of my identity in Christ, I long to share with them and to love them as well. Would you ask him to give you that conviction in your heart? Perhaps this is a moment to repent and confess a lack of engagement with people who need Jesus. Whoever they are, wherever they live. You might just say to him, God, I I no longer wanna live a life apart from my identity as a follower of Christ, apart from my identity as ambassador of Jesus, a minister of reconciliation, I wanna walk in faithful obedience to your commission, your call. And I wanna know and experience the enablement of your spirit as I go out. I'm turning away from fear, anxiety, doubts, about sharing. And I wanna trust that you will use me. You can use me. I believe that. And I'm gonna trust that Jesus, you will speak through me and that the Holy Spirit will give me the words to say. Perhaps you want to take a moment just before we eat the bread and the cup and pray for your one if you identified that person. Someone, maybe it's your mom or your dad or a brother or sister, an aunt or an uncle, a cousin. Maybe it's a coworker of yours or a neighbor. Someone that you're praying for to to know Christ. Maybe you pray for them this morning. Father, we thank you for these symbols of the bread and the cup. We recognize that Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread like this and he broke it and he gave thanks. And he declared that this bread was a symbol of his body that would be broken for us, that would hang on a tree, that would take the torture and pain and the death, the penalty for our sins on himself. We are grateful for the salvation that we have in Christ. And we thank you, Jesus, for laying down your life for us. Let's take the